Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. It's great to be here this morning with you. I disagree with Emil. It's actually, I think, quite cold today. So I hope you guys are bundled up a bit. And if not, let's just hope for some warmer weather around the corner. I hope that everyone here had, had a fantastic Easter weekend. When we celebrate holidays like this, it can be easy to, to focus and think about what did Jesus do for us? You know, Jesus died for us. Uh, Jesus rose and reconciled humanity to God. And now we're coming out of the next week, and, and how do we actually navigate life? And when we went through this past Good Friday and Sunday service, we spent time in the Gospel of Luke. And for this morning, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of John. So our text this morning is John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Just a bit of background information leading up to this passage. Jesus has now risen from the grave, and he started revealing himself to people. And these specific disciples in John, they haven't actually seen Jesus yet. And in a very unfamiliar world for them, their Messiah, the one that they served, has died. And they don't know that he's risen yet. So what do you do when unfamiliar things happen? you go back to what's familiar. So they go back to fishing. And so they're on the sea, and Simon Peter suggests, okay, let's, let's go out fishing. And it's at nighttime, and they're going night fishing, and they have zero luck. Can't catch anything. They fish actually the entire night. And as the sun is rising in the morning, Jesus is on the shore. Uh, they don't recognize Jesus. Now, it could be because of a fog, or maybe Jesus put a veil over their eyes. And he, he yells out to them on the boat and says, Have you guys caught anything yet? And they respond, and they haven't caught anything. And he says, Throw the net on the other side. They throw the net on the other side. And of course, like Jesus does, there is a bountiful harvest there. And in that moment, John, one of the disciples, says, It's the Christ. It's Jesus. He's here. And they turn the boat around, and the boat's not going fast enough for Simon Peter. He jumps out into the water to swim to be with Jesus. Remember, Simon Peter is the one who denied Jesus, denied him three times. And so they arrive on the shore, and Jesus has actually prepared a breakfast for them. And they sit down, and we arrive at the text that we're going to be digging into this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Otherwise, it will be on the PowerPoint behind us. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He, Jesus, said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said back to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. There's three observations this morning in Jesus' interaction with the disciples. It is firstly that Jesus is personal. 
Secondly, that Jesus is a restorer. He restores. And thirdly, that Jesus invites us into response. So let's dig in. Firstly, that Jesus is personal. Verses 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. So it says, when they have finished breakfast. I think oftentimes we read the Bible, we like to skip past the setting and location, historical information, and get to the meat of what's, what's happening here. But I think it's interesting to, I actually don't want to skip over that, because can you imagine what that must have been like? So what was the emotions there as the disciples sat there for breakfast? Was it a joyful noise? Were they excited to see Jesus, and maybe there was a bunch of hugging? Was there maybe a bit of awkwardness? I mean, imagine you had just denied the Lord, and there he is sitting in front of you eating breakfast. Is it quiet? Do you not know what to say? I mean, how do you ask Jesus a question? You know, maybe they're fishing at a popular area, and there's other fishermen there that don't know Jesus, and maybe they come over, and let's just say they, just bear with me on this, they sit down and join Jesus for a meal, and they actually don't know who this Jesus is. Is. Can you imagine that conversation saying, your, your name's Jesus, right? Uh, how was your weekend? And Jesus goes, oh, yeah, Friday I died. Uh, I, I came back to life, though, on Sunday. Uh, I did reconcile all humanity to God. And, you know, now I'm eating this really good breakfast. Uh, what, what did you do this weekend? I mean, how do you respond to that, right? Can you imagine small talk? I mean, I just can't even comprehend what it must have been like. So they finish, up bre- they finish up breakfast, and Jesus now turns to Peter and asks him the famous three questions. Again, Jesus is certainly a relational person. There's no doubt about it. We, had, we heard last Sunday about the road to Emmaus where Jesus walks with these two disciples. He does a relationship. And I often think about the fact that, that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, a flawless life. And then he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he could have said, Father, I did my part. I'm out of here. I'm bouncing. You know, I've endured this, and now I'm free. But instead, Jesus dies, endures this cosmic suffering, and comes back to share breakfast with disciples. How amazing is that? To walk a road with disciples. And I think we have to remember that that Jesus is, in fact, personal. And that the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross wasn't just physical. I remember 10 or 15 years ago in the States, there was a lot of buzz from books written by medical doctors, and they were detailing the physical pain that Jesus endured on the cross. Going through the medical terminology of, okay, this is what happened here, and I think that really does have its value and its purpose, but we must never forget that the pain that Jesus felt on a cosmic level is unimaginable. The wrath of sin, separation, we can't even comprehend that. The cross is not a magical item. There are people that died worse deaths for Jesus, and Jesus himself died. We have martyrs in first and second century that not only were they crucified, but they were flayed as well before that. There are those that have really endured pain, physical pain, on a similar cross. Yet Jesus alone endured this cosmic pain. And yet after that and out of that, he's having breakfast with the disciples. Having breakfast with the disciples. And we think about Jesus and John, and we go, man, he seems like such a, a relational great guy. And I don't know if he's like that today, but let's think about Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is just as relational today as he was back then. Jesus is just as personal uh, today as he was back then to Peter. That has not changed. Jesus, we can have that personal relationship with him. So the first observation is that, is that Jesus is personal. and We can see that in the text here. Secondly, that Jesus is a restorer. Jesus restores 
After they, rest, they, they, they uh, wrap up breakfast, Simon Peter asks these three very important questions. Actually, Jesus asked Simon these three questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, on the first one, it says, do you love me more than these? Some commentaries say that he's talking about the fish or the other disciples. But what we can all agree on is that's not the most important part. The important part is the question that Jesus is asking three times. Do you love me? And what is Peter's response here? He's grieved. He's grieved. He's grieved because it reminds him of the three times that he denied Jesus. It's not on the board, but I'm just going to read it out for you guys. This is John 13, 36 through 38. And this is about the betrayal. And the, the Jesus' betrayal and the denying. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, there was an exchange between Peter and Jesus. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Gosh, can you imagine hearing that? We also can't forget that Simon Peter is a mature, grown man, probably has a nice beard, an independent guy. And one of the people that he denies Jesus to is a little girl. A little girl. Can you imagine that? He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. I will follow you anywhere. And a little girl says, you know, do you know this? He says, oh, no, 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 I don't know. I'm, uh, uh, i got to go. And you can see this kind of nervous reaction out of that. So imagine the guilt. Imagine the shame there when he thinks about this denial. And especially the fact that Jesus asked the question three times. And here's a, here's a tough reality for us this morning. We're a lot more like Peter than we'd probably like to admit. Have you guys ever had conversation at airports, old friends catching up, and they ask you about your faith or what you believe in, and you shy away, and you deny that you know Christ? Or perhaps you've watered down the gospel. Oh, yeah, uh, you know, I don't really go to church, but I kind of like this idea of Jesus. We're a lot more like Peter than we think. And what's that feeling when we look back and think about those times? And I think in my own life of times where I had a chance to share the gospel and for convenience or whatever other reason, I didn't share the gospel. And as I ponder on that now, there's this knot in my stomach. And to multiply that times 100, Peter denied someone that he physically actually knew. And there he is in front of him again. And I think secondarily, on a second level, this grieving that he's experienced is multi-layered. Peter must also wonder, does Jesus think I don't mean this? Does Jesus think I'm disingenuous or maybe that I'm lying? Greg married my wife and I over two years ago in March 2020, right before COVID. Great time to get married, guys. Uh, And we just had a small wedding because we were adjusting because of COVID. And you can imagine, you know, Chris and I are standing in the front and Greg's right here and he's, we're going through the process. And as we get to the vows, he looks at me and says, Kyle, do you take Crystal to be your lawfully wedded wife through sickness and health, for richer or poorer, till death do you part, so long as you both shall live? And I look at my wife with a smile on my face and joy and excitement for the future, and I say, I do. And after a moment of silence, Greg looks at me and says, Kyle, do you take Krishna to be your lawfully wedded husband through sickness and health, richer or poorer, till death do you part, so long as you both shall live? 
Okay, you know, Greg's getting older. Maybe he's a bit hard of hearing. Uh, or maybe he's just trying to really emphasize the point here. Okay, I'm feeling a bit, like, frustrated. Okay, I do. I do. Okay, let's move on to her now. Then Greg looks at me again. Kyle, do you take Krishna to be your lawfully wedded wife through sickness and health? I would be upset at that point. You know the question I'm going to be asking myself first? Does he not think I can love her that well? Does he not trust that I will be with her through death? Does, she not, does he not believe that for richer or poorer, I'm going to support her? Why is he still asking me this question? He, he doesn't believe me. Or maybe he doesn't think I understand the concept of love. You can imagine the pain that, that Peter is feeling. It's multi-layered. It reminds him of the denial, and also he's thinking, Jesus, I feel like I love you, but do I not love you? Please, you know everything. What is actually happening here, though? Is that what's happening? Is Jesus uncertain about Peter's future in ministry? Is, is Jesus wondering if Peter has what it takes, or maybe if he can trust Peter? That's an important question we need to know. Is Jesus uncertain if Peter genuinely loved him? We do know that Jesus knows everything. And Peter responds the third time and says, you know everything. And that's the last time Jesus asked the question. Jesus can read our minds. And I know we don't say that much because it sounds like something from X-Men, but Jesus actually can read our minds. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. Jesus is asking Peter, not for Jesus' sake. Jesus is asking Peter for the sake of Peter's restoration so that, G- that Peter would be restored towards ministry. He's asking these questions so that Peter may be restored from his shame, from his guilt, redeemed from this denial. Jesus is breathing his healing breath over the life and calling of Peter. Jesus restores him. Jesus restores Peter, and he restores him purposefully. I think one of the reasons why Jesus restores Peter here is had, had Peter not been restored, he would have been a shadow of a man the rest of his life. He would have been a defect in his ministry. Or perhaps he would have said, did I go too far? I've passed the point of no return. I can't come back from this. And many times we feel that in our own lives. Maybe we have addiction problems with sin or we deal with difficult situations and we wonder, can I come back from this? Is this the point of no return? Can I be redeemed Does the Lord want to restore me? So there's this idea of this this defect, and Jesus is restoring him for a greater purpose. How do you come back from this? And we can see this manifest in life today. When we experience trauma, when we experience shame, without Jesus' restoration, we can operate out of the shame with brokenness. Our glasses, our worldview is damaged, and the way we act out of that, the way we hurt other people, and the way we live our life comes through that shame and brokenness. A a helpful proverb of this is, it's an old Turkish proverb, I think it gives a helpful illustration, after you burn your mouth on hot milk, you blow on yogurt. After you burn your mouth on hot milk, you blow on yogurt. They're both milk products. Once you have a bad experience with something once, you're immediately cautious and nervous. Anytime you have to interact with people again, you were hurt this one time by a person, and now you have a guard up whenever you deal with people. If you don't let the Lord come in and restore, you'll be working and operating out of that brokenness. This denial would have been so destructive for Peter. Why Peter specifically? This guy saw the transfiguration of Christ. He saw Jesus in his glory. He called Jesus the Christ. 
And also, he obeyed following the Lord originally. And then coming out of this earlier in the Gospels, he's committed in obedience to the Lord. And yet, he denies him. And he denies him to a little girl. Can you imagine, again, this destructive denial? So Jesus comes into this situation with personal compassion and restores Peter to his calling and to his purpose. Everyone here this morning has a calling and has a purpose. We have to invite Jesus in and allow him the space to restore us, and he restores us purposefully. And this leads us to our third point. Jesus invites the disciples into response. I think in today's society, we linger on the restoration side of faith. We love a God who will heal us of our sickness and all of our problems, but we don't think about the other side of restoration. If you go through the Bible with the tribe of Israel and the disciples, Jesus always restores towards something. It's never restoration on its own, and it's done. We think in Christian circles sometimes restoration is like a presidential pardon, that the president will choose an inmate who, is convicted sin, who has done sin against society, and he will pour out that pardon on them, and they're free to go and do whatever they want. They don't have any liability to society. They don't have any responsibility anymore. They're free to go. That's not restoration in Christianity. Restoration in Christianity is you get restored towards something. And we see this actually in a, in a mighty way in the life of Peter. We want our loved ones to be healed of sickness. And that, that's, that's fine. We want breakthrough in our own lives with anxiety. But why do we actually want these things? Why do we want healing from sickness? Why do we want to be free from depression and anxiety? Is it only to escape the pain? Is it only to escape the suffering? Maybe we have it backwards. Do we want to escape these things for a greater purpose? And this is where everything gets flipped on its head in verses 18 and 19. So so Peter's been restored here, and this is Jesus' response. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to die for the glory of God. So he's been restored, and this is the purpose, for the glory of God. And that might be intimidating, and that doesn't mean that's what it's going to look like, of course, for all of us. But think about this. Peter was restored from his own personal suffering, shame, guilt, You know, letting down his friends, letting down his Lord. He's restored from that. And then he's invited into suffering for the sake of Christ. He's invited into suffering for the glory of God. So it's not that our ultimate goal on this earth is to escape all pain and suffering. And we do pray for God's hand in that. But look about how reversed it is based on today's society. Peter is freed from this. Yet he's invited into suffering and opening his arms so that he would die in a way that glorifies the Lord and for the purpose of his mission. So what does Jesus specifically restore Peter towards? So for the rest of his days, before he will will die for the sake of the gospel, what is he supposed to do during that time? We had those three questions earlier. Do you love me? And each time Jesus gives a response. First he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. And finally he says, feed my sheep. So what is Peter to feed them? So, you know, obviously sheep is talking about the church, the body, Christians, and community. What is Peter to feed them with? Should Peter feed them with religious doctrine and routine? I don't think that's the answer. Is Jesus supposed to teach them and feed them with standards of morality? Do this, don't do this. 
No, Peter is supposed to feed them Jesus. John 6, 5, 4. Whoever feeds on my flesh and blood uh, on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. John 6:35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. When Jesus originally said this in John, many disciples left. They didn't want to follow Jesus anymore. They're like, I'm not a I don't don't want anything to do with cannibalism. They misunderstood the text there. And that's the thing. The solution is Peter doesn't actually provide the sustenance. Peter points them towards Christ. Christ is the bread. Christ is the life. That's what he feeds us with. He points us towards Christ. Christ is supposed to be our sustenance, where we draw life from, where we cling closely to. And that's the call and purpose that Jesus has given to Peter here. And also, Jesus isn't asking Peter to do something just one time and be done with it. Hey, throw some feet in there and then you're free to go. This is a lifelong purpose to continually tend, to continually feed, to continually point the body of Christ to Jesus. Every Wednesday, every Sunday, every day. To point continually. And that idea of tend is not a one-time thing. It's a long-time process. And finally, we get to the key response the key purposeful restoration here, which is, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. We hear this all the time. I'm sure there's a term for it, but sometimes we hear things so many times in Christian circles, they kind of lose meaning. I remember that, you know, the what would Jesus do bracelets. You see them so much and hear about them so often that you never even ask what it was saying anymore. And growing up, you hear about follow me, follow me, but actually what does that even mean? We just kind of turn ourselves off sometimes when we hear words like that. So what does follow me mean here? And primarily, how do we follow Jesus? So three three principles based off the Gospels about how to follow Jesus. Firstly, know Jesus. (laughs) Well, of course, right? But actually, how do you do that? How do you know Jesus? And we have to ask ourselves a crucial question this morning. Do you follow the Jesus of the Bible? Or do you follow your idea of Jesus? Is your Jesus a baby Jesus? Remember the Talladega Nights movie where they're praying to talk about how much they love baby Jesus. Is the Jesus that you follow a baby Jesus? He's going to grow up and live a perfect life and die for your sins. And, you know, you're going to get to go to heaven and have a good life. But baby Jesus can't talk. Baby Jesus doesn't really have feelings. All he can do is kind of sit there and stare at you. And he's going to pay the price and you can be a Christian but he's never going to convict you. He's never going to call you to a higher standard. Is it a baby Jesus that you follow? Or maybe you follow a rebel Jesus. This is popular these days in something called liberation theology. And liberation theology certainly has its place sometimes. But it's this idea of Jesus came to destroy everything. And on a level, Jesus does come to change up everything. But this focus of rebel Jesus is, I don't want to be a part of church because they're all hypocrites. I'll just have my relationship with Jesus. Jesus wasn't a part of organized things or didn't like group things. So is it a rebel Jesus that you follow? You kind of just have Jesus on your own. It's your own thing. You like to fight and argue about everything when they come. Or maybe you follow a progressive Jesus. And this Jesus only knows one word, which is love. And Jesus certainly is love, but anytime words of judgment come out, we X that out. If you follow, or maybe you're following this progressive Jesus, you're stuck on the fact of just isolating out this one characteristic of Christ. You ignore his interactions with the Pharisees. You ignore how he speaks to those that would 
insult and disrespect God? So is that your idea of Jesus? So how do we actually know which Jesus we're following? How do we follow the right one? Fortunately, it's actually kind of easy, which is reading the Word of God. The Bible tells us who Jesus is. And in so many beautiful ways, just to break down a few super quickly, we can see how Jesus interacts with his friends. We can see how Jesus interacts with those that are against him. What does Jesus say? What's valuable to Jesus? What does he care about? How does he interact with men? How does he deal with children? How does he navigate with women? We can figure out how he responds to these things. And we can know through the whole book of the Bible who Jesus is. That has to be our framework for following Jesus. We can see these emotions in his relationship. Um, so moving to South Africa, uh, I made quite an observation when I first, first came here. And it's probably not the observation you think. And I asked many of my friends about this, and they, kind of, they actually didn't really understand what I was talking about. And I was like, why is it that almost every car here is painted the color white? I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Or maybe you're just now realizing that, and I actually went out earlier just to make sure. And yeah, most of the cars are white. So I was like, why is that? Because in the States, it's just like every car is kind of different colors. So it's just a lot of white cars. Also, there's the Volkswagen plant, I think, is here as well. And so there's a lot of white Volkswagen polos on the road. Everywhere. Everywhere you look, it's a tsunami of white polos. And South Africans, you're just so used to it, you don't even notice it. But for me, I'm like, what's going on here? It's a monopoly. Um, and so you think about this, and you're on the road, and let's say one of your really good friends drives one of these white, normal-looking Volkswagen Polos, and you're following them on directions to a place that you're unfamiliar with. And knowing that there's probably 50 other of them on the road at any given time around you, how do you make sure to follow the proper car? How do you do that? Well, you, you get to know the idiosyncrasies of the car in front of you. Do they have a scratch there? Get to know their license plate number. Maybe they have a, a black tint or some bumper stickers with CG on it, and that's how you know. Or maybe you learn by how they drive. They're a fast driver, they're slow. Maybe they're a terrible driver, and you know you're following them because they're halfway off the road. And that's how you know. You know how to follow because you know the person. You know their vehicle. And that's how you discern and push out all the other Jesuses that are there. That are, they're similar, right? It's like when you eat a fake recipe from one of your favorite restaurants. It kind of tastes the same, but something's just not quite right. It's a similar idea. You see these other distractions out there. We have to make sure that we know Jesus so that we don't get distracted by a contemporary, attractive model of Jesus. That would lead us astray. That would lead us down the wrong path. We need to know well. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus is praying here. And just to say Jesus speaks in the third person, so that might seem a little strange. But this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, that they may know you, God, and that they may know me, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We need to know Jesus. Secondly, after knowing him, and after we find the Jesus from the Bible to follow, we need to cling closely. We need to cling urgently. In Mark 5, 28, is the story of the woman who's been sick with bleeding, and she knows and hears that Jesus is coming into town. And she goes, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. Through the muck and the mire and the crowd and the sound, she goes and she finds that garment and she clings to Jesus. And she's healed. 
She knows it's not going to be easy to get there. And she knows that if she sees Jesus from a distance, she will not be made well. That's the conviction she has. I need to just be close to him. I need to touch his garments and I'll be here. We need to cling closely to the Lord. Also, we need to cling with urgency. Even if we think about this woman who was sick, she knows, okay, I want to cling closely to the Lord, but I'll wait till he comes around town next time. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. I'm busy. I've got things going on in my life. I do want to be healed. I do want to draw near. But life is busy right now, and you know, I'm just not feeling it. There's a level of urgency. Is there a lack of urgency in your walk with the Lord? I often hear old friends of mine from, from university, and we chat and catch up sometimes and ask them how they're doing. I'm from the Bible Belt in the States, so it's a lot of like, uh, nominal Christians. Like everyone's, it's weird if you're not Christian where I'm from, but most people, it's just very uh, superficial. And so I often ask, you know, uh, when are you guys going to start going back to church or start, you know, getting serious about following the Lord again? And no one ever says, oh, we don't plan to. Like, we're done with Christianity. It's always, well, life's kind of busy. We just moved. Oh, I got a new job. I'm in this new relationship. Or I often hear, when we start having kids, we want our kids to grow up in a Christian environment. We want them to learn Christian principles and values. And so we'll do it then. And then they have kids, and they say, oh, when the kids are in university, it's quite hectic right now, and then we'll get involved in church. And there's always this this lack of urgency with the reality of, we don't know what the future holds. My wife and I, Krishna, are incredibly privileged in a weird way with the work that she does. So she's a fourth-year paramedic student, so she works on ambulances. And she works every weekend, two, two shifts a weekend. And she's on these ambulances going into these tough places, and she sees hectic stuff all the time, I mean every week. And she comes home from shift and we, we chat for a while and maybe process it if it's been quite a hectic shift. And you know one thing that's fascinating? How many times people are having breakfast or going on a morning walk and their spouse just falls over? In their 40s. People are doing casual things and next thing you know, they had plans. We were going to go to the States in December. We were going to go visit our cousin and Christmas pointed out many times how people will just, just drop. And you don't have, I mean, you just think I, think, I think we live like we're immortal, right? We don't admit it, but probably most of us here live like death actually is going to come for us. And I guess the blessing that my wife and I have is we're constantly confronted by the reality that we don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. I hope I am, but I don't know. I don't know if something's going to happen. And in my wife's work, it's such a, a actually blessing and a reminder that we have to have a level of urgency with faith. We don't get to put off faith for a later date, because you might die. And I know we say that all the time, but I can attest, I've seen it through my wife. People just going out for a brunch, and that's just how it ends. We have to have a level of urgency. Because the reality is, many of us live where Jesus, we, we like him in the distance, we like Jesus to be just over there. I want to have my eyes on him because I like coming on Easter. I love coming for Christmas. I like the traditions. I want to make sure I can see Jesus there, but don't get too close. Don't get too close, Jesus. Here's what happens. You lose your job. You go through a difficult season, and you're distracted, and you look up again, and you've gone off the wrong path. You were so far from Jesus. It was so easy to get lost and sidetracked. We shouldn't live like that. We want to cling closely to the Lord. We want to cling urgently to him. Notice I said urgent, not anxious. Jesus 
Jesus hates anxiousness. This is not an anxious response. By urgency, it means seriousness, commitment, dedication, a level of seriousness that I know I have to get serious about following the Lord. Thirdly, seek community. When Jesus called the disciples, he didn't call one person. You know, medieval trade at the time, you have the, the goldsmiths, etc., and they'd usually have their one apprentice. Jesus didn't do an apprentice model. He didn't choose just one person who was like pretty holy and a good guy and said, okay, this is, you're going to be my one person. I'm going to teach you everything. He also didn't do a personal assistant model as well. He chose disciples, a group of people. So when Simon Peter is walking this road with Jesus, he's also walking next to other disciples, next to other people. He's involved in community on this road. In Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, and as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. If you feel lost, seek the Lord. Seek godly counsel and seek community. If your marriage right now is on the brink and you feel like you're on a road and it's dim and it's foggy, seek help in the community of Christ here at Covenant Grace. I can guarantee you there are people that have walked that road before and they can be there for you. And if they haven't walked that road, there'll be a shoulder for you to cry on and support and make meals for you. There is help here at Covenant Grace. And yes, we are not a substitute for Jesus, but there is community and help available here. Seek community. We are meant to be a part of community. So let's dive into a desire to know him in a personal way. Let's cling to him closely and urgently. And let's seek help from our brothers and sisters in Christ as we navigate personal relationship and following Jesus, thanks and due to his purposeful restoration. So as we close this morning, I want to speak to two groups. Maybe you've never personally given your life over to Christ. And when Jesus spoke, follow me, you've not listened, or maybe you've never heard him say that. My prayer for you this morning is that you would ask the Lord to reveal himself to you. You'd ask Jesus to restore you. You would ask him to come into your heart, to regenerate you, and that you would start on this beautiful journey to following Jesus. Or maybe you followed Jesus a long time ago at a kid's camp when you were a kid, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And you still want to be Christian, but, you know, Jesus is far away again. And you've put on the brakes as life has gone by. Things have come up, and you're not even really sure what Jesus is like anymore. You're not even really sure what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if that's you this morning, Peter denied the Lord, and he also was asked again to follow the Lord. He said, follow me, and he obeyed. He denied him. We can come back. Jesus restores us. So if you're on that journey now, I pray, my, my genuine prayer for you is you'd ask the Lord to show you the way, that you would follow him. And this morning we're going to conclude with uh, one of the hymns that I quite enjoy, just a couple phrases, and I hope that this will be something you think on this morning. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. No turning back. Lord, we're so thankful that we have the opportunity to follow you. That you are in fact good. You are holy. And that you do restore us with a purpose towards something for your glory. Convict us this morning. 
to return to your arms. Help us to cling closely to you with urgency, to seek community. Help us on this journey to know you. What are you like? We want to know you more. We want to know how you act, Lord. We want to know you in a personal and genuine way. Thank you for the healing that you do do and that there's no path we can go that's too far away from your redemption. We cannot walk away too far for you to restore us. You can restore us no matter what place we are. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.